listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's uh, continue with this. I think we're going to be able to finish this up today, which is fantastic, because I've got some other articles we need to review on technocracy and eugenics, and we're going to be able to start to tie some of these pieces together. And I'm going to start to break this all down for you. I'm working on some timelines, and I want to show you really a clear, clear picture of uh, the late 1800s to the early 1900s and really start to be able to tie this into what's going on today and show you that this all exists. We're here. We're in the middle of it. This is not something that's coming. We're in it. We live in it. We just don't know it. All right. It goes on to say the progressives also believe strongly in the legitimacy of, quote, social control, end quote, a catchphrase of progressive era reformers, as it was for their successors, the institutionalists, quote, social control, end quote, did not refer narrowly to state regulation of markets. Edward A. Ross in 1901, who popularized the term, employed it in a broader sociological sense to describe the various ways in which society, quote, can mold the individual to the necessity of the group, end quote, which in the context context of eugenics meant a, quote, program for survival, end quote, of the Anglo-Saxon race. All right, so it's important to understand that, in which society can mold the individual to the necessity of the group see no individualism you're being socially engineered if not genetically engineered to fit into the system the system the group the system of total control it's in the eyes of those in charge right this is why the scientists and engineers wanted to be in charge of all this because it's going to be them who decides exactly what you're going to be in order to fit into their system of total control the legitimacy of social control meant in practice the legitimacy of state control For progressives, the legitimacy of state control derived from their conception of the state as an entity prior to and greater than the sum of its constituent individuals, a conception that opposed the traditional liberal emphasis on individual freedom and the liberal view that the state's legitimacy derives solely from the consent of its individual creators. Lester Ward devised the term, quote, sociocracy, end quote, to describe the, quote, scientific control of the social forces by the collective mind of society, end quote. Now, let me just explain this because I don't know how many people know this, don't know this, uh, whatever it may be. About 20, what, 20, 25 years ago, the left started to call themselves liberals and the so-called right the conservatives would refer to the left as liberals uh like dan bongino even still says oh we're owning the libs we're owning the libs see we gave these psychopaths 
uh, these communists, these socialists, these Marxists, these folks that just want total control, the ability to use a term, liberal, that actually meant nothing. It, it, it had nothing to do with what they were. So go back to the origins here. Uh, when they're talking about the progressives, and we also would start to call progressives liberals as if the two things meant the same thing. And it doesn't. The progressives, you can see what they're all about, a system of total control. The real liberals, the classical liberals, were really the Thomas Jeffersons of the world that talked about individual liberty, um, human autonomy, freedom, right? And that's not what these guys are about. Obviously, you can see the progressives are the furthest thing away from freedom. They want to develop a system, a state, which has total control and socially and genetically engineers everyone within that system to conform to the system, right? The furthest thing from liberals. So as you can see, just a teaching moment there, how words are stolen over time. Just like the rainbow, it used to mean happiness. Now it means gay, which, by the way, gay also meant happiness. So there you go. Everything gets twisted and turned upside down, folks. It goes on to say the progressives' somewhat anti-democratic impulses also led them to believe that academic experts were both sufficient and necessary for the task of wise public administration because they could and would suspend their own interest to transcend the messy business of democratic politics. As one widely read eugenics text put it, quote, government and social control are in the hands of expert politicians who have power instead of expert technologists who have wisdom. There should be technologists in control of every field of human need and desire, end quote. And this was quoted from Albert Wiggum's new dialogue, 1923, in Ludmire, 1972, right? So Ludmire writes this in 72. He's quoting Albert Wiggum's new uh, Decalogue, uh, 1923. So there you go. Back in 1923, they were starting with this idea that the whole system should be put in the hand of these technologists with wisdom. That's when we started to see the rise of technocracy. You see how all the pieces are fitting in together here? It goes on to say, the case for technocratic governance was put badly by Irving Fisher in 1907. Quote, the world consists of two classes, the educated and the ignorant. And it is essential for progress that the former should be allowed to dominate the latter. Once we admit that it is proper for the instructed classes to give tuition to the uninstructed, we begin to see an almost boundless vista for possible human betterment, end quote. Thus were eugenics and progressivism contemporary. Uh, complementary rather than antagonistic trends in the United States during the progressive era. It is a temptation to regard progressive thought of a century ago as akin to contemporary progressivism. But progressive era progressives viewed the poor and disenfranchised with great ambivalence. Many clearly believe that defective heredity offered a basis for sorting the worthy poor from the unworthy poor, and that uplift of the worthy poor required eugenic control of the unworthy poor. Consider 
Popino and Johnson's very successful Applied Eugenics, written in 1918, published as part of the Social Science Textbook series edited by Richard T. Eli. Popino and Johnson argued for legislation that would abolish child labor and provide education for all children, quintessentially progressive policies. But compulsory education and child labor bans for Papado and Johnson were desirable because the unfit poor would be unable to put their children to work and thus would have fewer children, a eugenic goal. Indeed, Papano and Johnson opposed free school lunches and textbooks for the poor on the grounds that subsidies of books and lunches would lower the cost of child rearing and thereby increase the number of children born to the unfit. So see, this is where they were advocating for putting policies into place that was all about social engineering. And you still see this going on today. Now, you can agree or disagree with the policies. That's not the point. You just need to understand that this stuff was going on over 100 years ago. It's not new, right? So in the world we live in today, you could incentivize poverty-stricken folks to have more children, uh, by saying, one, don't get married, don't have the uh, baby's dad, daddy around, right? So don't get married, and then we'll give you welfare, we'll give you food stamps, and we'll give you more for each kid you pump out. So they encourage uh, poverty-stricken folks to continue to have more kids. Well, back then they were saying, one, let's make sure that these people don't have jobs. Number two, let's make sure that they can't afford the school lunches and the books uh, and, and policies like that to encourage them to have less children. So to try to weed out these poverty-stricken gene pools by socially engineering these people into the decision-making and picking the option, uh, the solution to the problems that the technocrats, the eugenicists, wanted them to choose. All right, so as you can see, this stuff was going on long before the place that we find ourselves today. They've been at work for quite a long time, folks. It says, similarly, Emily Green Balch, a Wes, uh, Wellesley College economist and future winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1946 for her role as a peace activist, made the eugenic case against subsidies for poor school children. Quote, if you simply want to have more people, deprave people quite as well as any other class, end quote, said Balch in 1907, that, quote, feeding school children is a good thing. But if you believe it is important to have more of the right kind of people, then any measure of encouragement should be most carefully selective in character, end quote. That progressives could oppose subsidies for poor school children reveals the extent to which eugenics informed American progressive era reform, right? So you see how all this stuff fits in together. Everything is about social control. Everything is about social engineering. You don't live in a world that's just happenstance. This is not organic. Everything is engineered around you. So just think about what we talked about right there while we go to the break, and then try to come up with some things in your head today where you can see the social engineering in practice. Because here you're looking at it in words. You're reading the plans of the progressives. Just a very small amount of it here we're just touching the tip of the iceberg but you can see how calculated they are in their plans to socially engineer and eventually control society all right ladies and gentlemen so government can actually do that 
And why is that? Because government has the power to hand out the welfare, the food coupons and everything else so they can engineer society. So get people hooked on uh, their cheap labor job and then engineer them out of their job. Get people hooked on government assistance and take that away from them. Well, before, when people lived out in a cabin in the middle of the woods with no neighbors for miles, they would decide how many children they were actually going to have, and they would do that based on keeping their family together, wanting offspring. But see, as more government control, as the state grew bigger, then the state wanted to have control. Therefore, the state had to then engineer the system in which the people that they have power over live inside of. You see how that works, folks? A system of total control. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back on this Sunday evening, Monday morning, whenever you're listening. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Payne.tv slash gold. All right, folks, I'm going to pull this back up, and we're going to continue... Working our way through this, you're going to have a solid understanding of the progressive era in eugenics by the time we're done. Again, this was a fantastic piece. I've read a lot of stuff, but this was a great summary. goes on to say, what happened to progressive era eugenics? American eugenics went into decline in the 1930s, increasingly burdened by its political, demographic, and scientific liabilities. Politically, the close association of eugenic ideas with the Nazi regime increasingly discredited American eugenic policies, and the newly powerful Catholic Church also opposed eugenics, both because church doctrine forbade interference with conception and because many American Catholics belonged to groups the eugenicists considered unfit. But the progressive era vogue for eugenics was also undone by demographic and scientific developments. Now, I would argue, and we'll see what they say in this paper, paper that eugenics never actually ended, folks. It's a, you see it alive and well today. As we've said several times, it's hidden under CRISPR-Cas9, DNA splicing, gene editing, uh, putting brain chips in people's heads, uh, you know, transhumanism. That's what it is today. It just progressed. It progressed out of the progressive era into a new brand. It's like a hermit crab that crawls out of its shell and then goes into a new shell. Now, you would not say the hermit crab disappeared. No, the hermit crab rebranded. All right, it goes on to say, demographically, American eugenics lost impetus from its own handiwork, the race-based immigration quotas of the 1920s, and from the subsequent Depression-era decline in fertility. Already stalled by World War I, the immigration of the Eastern and Southern European peoples, eugenicists deem racially inferior, 
was effectively terminated by eugenics-inspired immigration restrictions, notably the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and the Immigration Act of 1924. The Immigration Act's quotas reduced immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which averaged 730,000 people per year in the decade before World War I, to a mere 20,000 persons per year. And when, in the 1930s, when American birth rates dipped below replacement level, shrinking population seemed a greater economic threat than differential fertility. All right, so now they create a whole new set of problems, and then they can offer a whole new set of solutions. But if you wanted to weed out certain races, as I said, you just build a border wall and start turning boats away with people. And so they started doing this in the 20s, but then they had a situation where they saw birth rates dropping. Well, that's because of a lot of the uh, policies that they put in place on the other side that we just talked about before the break. Scientifically, developments in genetics increasingly made American eugenics preferred method. The development of elaborate family pedigrees, an untenable empirical foundation for eugenic goals. Eugenic scientists such as geneticist Charles Davenport of the Eugenics Record Office built hundreds of pedigrees on the view that inherited traits followed a simple Mendelian logic. That is, that all human traits were determined by a pair of genes, one from each parent. Traits, whether dominant, expressed when either or both parents carried a dominant gene, or recessive, expressed when both parents carried a recessive gene, could be mapped with information about the family tree and with accurate, quote, scoring, end quote, of family members for the presence of absence of the trait. And so we see that practice alive and well with orchid biosciences and these other um, designer baby companies, right? We see that going on today. What they do is they collect a number of embryos and then they run tests on them and they'll come back and tell you all the horrible traits that you have and we could pick the best embryo or we can start to fuse good DNA slices from our catalog of good DNA in with the bad DNA and before you know it you're just building a baby on amazon.com choosing the eye color choosing the hair choosing the nose choosing the ears before you know it it's not even the human child anymore so again this goes to show you Going back over a century ago, they were already working towards this, folks. The single trait, single gene pair template held good for traits such as Huntington's disease, dominant, or albinism, recessive, which are readily scored and are, in fact, caused by a mutation in a single gene. But progressive-era eugenicists were routinely imprecise in their definition of a trait. Quote, feeble-mindedness, end quote, for example, covered a whole range of mental disabilities whose genetic basis, when it existed, could obviously differ across persons. Other traits eugenicists research, such as, quote, shiftlessness, end quote, were fanciful, and still others, such as intelligence or artistic ability, were quite complex, making their, quote, scoring, quote, a difficult problem. It also gave rise to the intelligence testing industry. Pedigrees also show only that certain human characteristics run in families. They cannot establish genetic cause. But eugenic scientists ordinarily ignored non-hereditarian causes to the point that Davenport purported to find a genetic basis for, quote, 
phallosophilia, end quote, or love of the sea. Oh, see that, folks? We learned something new. I didn't know thalassophilia was the love of the sea, but now I know that. Finally, pedigrees are of little help, or polygenetic traits, traits that are determined by the complex interaction of large number of genes. These scientific shortcomings poorly define fanciful and complex traits. The unwillingness to address environmental and polygenic causes gradually persuaded American geneticists led by Thomas Hunt Morgan to distance themselves from the eugenic organizations they once embraced. Geneticist Herbert Jennings resigned from the American Eugenic Society in 1925, a year after writing to Irving Fisher that eugenic societies were no place for men of science. Geneticist Raymond Pearl, this is in 1927, an early eugenic enthusiast, distanced genetics from eugenics in H.L. Mencken's American Mercury, an apostasy that caused the withdrawal of a job offer from Harvard. However, the slow retreat of geneticists from eugenics organizations was not a repudiation of eugenics per se. If critics among geneticists such as Ronald A. Fisher or Herman Muller increasingly rejected the science behind progressive era eugenics, they did not reject the eugenic ideal. On the contrary, Muller, for example, imagined that a more sophisticated genetics would place eugenics upon a firmer scientific foundation, better enabling the social direction of human biological evolution. If American eugenics declined under the weight of its political, demographic, and scientific liabilities, the eugenic dream did not. And that's what I'm telling you, folks. It never actually ended eugenics went on it continued it is alive and well today we are seeing it alive and well today they were giving up on their plans for how they were going to introduce it but they still agreed with the goals of eugenics Let's look at the conclusion in this paper. It says, today, genetic screening and sex selection are commonplace, and some call the contemporary applications of human genomic knowledge a new eugenics. But contemporary eugenics, if we may use this term, differs from its progressive era and uh, antecedent in two important ways. First, a better understanding of the mechanisms of inheritance has undermine the putative biological significance of race and class. The casual identification of race or class with inherited uh, debility still exists, but it is far less pervasive today. Second, modern eugenics, exceptions like China to one side, vest the power to select with families, not with the state. In today's, quote, free market, end quote, in eugenics, experts advise but do not compel. But it's here, folks. It's here. They don't have to compel you because they can socially engineer you into the right decision. Just like all of the vaccines they want you to give your children. Well, if 99% of people are doing that, I don't think they really are making the wise decision. They were compelled into that decision because they were socially engineered into that decision. And these guys would call it advising, advising you. 
Quote, this last matter, who shall decide, individual or state, is central to the history of eugenics as it is to the history of economics. For example, even progressives who contemn the identification of race with biological inferiority could remain committed to the idea of eugenic selection and to the idea that the state, not, quote, nature, end quote, should select the fittest, right? The state not nature, should select the fittest. Folks, it is a system of total control. And I told you a hundred times, and I will say it again, this is the path we go down, the engineering of humanity out of existence. This is a war on humanity. Humans just don't know it yet, folks. What I do know is I'm going to take a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. 